The scripture reading this morning is from Mark 10, verse 35 through 52. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. Jesus said to them, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, We are able. And Jesus said to them, The cup that I drink you will drink, and with the baptism with which I am baptized you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left hand is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. And they came to Jericho. And as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples and a great crowd, Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside. And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And many rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and said, call him. And they called the blind man, saying to him, take heart, get up, he is calling you. And throwing off his cloak, he sprang up and came to Jesus. And Jesus said to him, what do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said to him, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, go on your way, your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him on the way. Reading of God's word. Amen. Thank you, Sarah. The, uh, this morning, after many months in the book of Mark, well, this will be the last week, uh, and then we'll take a break until the new year, and we'll pick back up with the last chapters, which lead us into Easter. It's the final week of Jesus' life. And so, as we're closing out this book, um, I... And we need to take a little bit. I have the, I have the don't, don't freak out if you're in school. We do have a blackboard up here, a whiteboard, and there will be a little bit because I, I need to show you something about how the Bible is structured because we're not reading a newspaper, right? We're not hearing the, everything that Jesus did when he was on earth isn't recorded in the Gospels. John actually says, if I had to put everything that was in there, it wouldn't even contain it. Books couldn't contain all that Jesus did. Each of these Gospels that we have is is structured, that the Holy Spirit inspired the writers to put them together in a certain way, and the way we read uh, things, it, we sometimes can miss because we chop it up. You know, the, the the Holy Spirit didn't particularly give chapters and verses. They were just written as one story. So we've divided it up for ease of reference, but I want to take a few minutes this morning to look at 
how this section that closes, because it's kind of interesting, and I think it helps us to what the Bible's trying to point us to and get us to see here this morning. Remember, this book was being written some 30 or so years after Jesus was crucified, and so there are now people following him who never met him personally. They're, they're probably writing, Mark is probably writing through Peter's voice to believers in Rome who were now under incredible persecution by Nero. They, they were now getting thrown to the lions. This is a very difficult time to be a Christian. And so Mark is writing to encourage these people and to tell them what kind of king that he is and what it's actually going to look like to live in this world, in his kingdom, because it looks really different from the way Rome was living. So the section, the, the, rather than chapters and verses, the way the Gospels tend to be set up is by theme. And so the theme that we're looking at that ends this morning with the end of what we know as chapter 10 is the healing of this blind man. And he has a name, Bartimaeus, which bar means son, and so, so the healing of the blind, B-L-I-N-D, healing of the blind man, son of Timaeus, okay? The, the section begins at chapter 8, verse 22, with the healing of a blind man who we don't have his name. If you, you can go along in your Bibles if you want to, if you have them with you. But this is 8.22. This is the one where Jesus has a little spit and he puts it on his eyes and the man says, you know, I'm not sure what I'm seeing. And he, he heals it, but he heals a blind man. And then this whole section has some things that happen in between. First thing we have, and we, we covered all these, but I want to just show you in the structure of the book. We have Peter having a revelation of Jesus' identity. They say, who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you're the Christ. And in Luke it says, you know, son, uh, the flesh and blood didn't reveal this to you, the Spirit revealed this to you. So we have this revelation of the King and who He really is, that He is the Messiah. And then immediately Jesus tells them about His death. And he says, I'm going to die and be crucified. This is the first time, at least in the mark, that we know that he said this. And what does Peter do? Peter freaks out. Says, no, no, you're not going to be crucified. You know, I rebuke you. I rebuke that. And he gets rebuked in turn so that he does not understand, Peter does not understand what life is like in the kingdom. He's blind to what the kingdom looks like. So a sighted man Peter is blind to what it actually looks like to walk with Christ because he couldn't bring himself to see the cross. Okay, then we immediately go to the Mount of Transfiguration where Jesus goes up and he's revealed in his glory to be all the the Son of God. There's this bright light and the Peter, James, and John are all, you know, just like, oh my gosh. And so as they're walking back down the mountain, what does Jesus do? For the second time, he tells them about his death. I'm going to die. Uh, you know, this is, this is what God has called me to. And so then what do his followers do? His followers start arguing about who's going to be greatest in the kingdom of God. So these, immediately upon seeing this, they begin arguing as to who has first place, and Jesus says, you don't understand what my kingdom is like yet. See the, begin to see the pattern, right? See some repetition here? So then we have uh, the, the third p- part of this is um, the rich young ruler 
coming. And I think, again, Jesus says, we talked about this a couple of weeks ago, and he says to him, why do you call me good? He says, good teacher, why do you call me good? Only God is good. And Jesus, again, points to who he is as the king. Right after this, he, while the disciples can't cast out a demon, he says, when my kingdom comes, this is what it looks like. And the boy who has the demonic attack is freed. Identity, a revelation of what he is like. He, for the third time, tells about his death. And then we have the story this morning. What happens, right? James and John, the sons of thunder, they call them, the sons of Zebedee, begin to have an argument that Sarah read this morning. What are they arguing about? Saying, hey, when you come into your kingdom, I know you're going to need a transition team, you know? And I have some appointments that I would like to make, you know? And um, I'm nominating myself for secretary of state slash defense and head elder, head apostle in the kingdom. And, you know, that's the way it works in our world, doesn't it? And Jesus says, you don't know what you're asking for. You don't know what you're asking for. You people who have sight in this world, none of the disciples that we know of were blind or even had glasses. They were perfectly sighted and perfectly blind. They would have a revelation of who he was, but they That revelation of the king didn't translate yet into the kingdom, did it? They didn't understand what they were asking for. And so Jesus says, can you drink this cup? And they're thinking, I I can drink a cup. He says, can you be baptized? They, They, through John's baptism, I don't know what they were, but yeah, we can be baptized. Jesus says, you're gonna, if you're gonna follow me, you will. Because the cup, in Old Testament terms, the cup is always parallel with the wrath of God coming out on unrighteousness. And Jesus later is going to say, let this cup pass me by, right? I don't want to drink this cup. It's, it's referring to this death that came about because God's wrath, his justice must be satisfied. If there is no justice, right, then sin and all those things that are wrong in this world remain wrong. God's going to put everything right. But in order to do that, he's got to be just, and so, but they don't understand that that cup, that the justice we get comes about by God pouring out wrath. And then the baptism is going to be the suffering that follows that. And he says, you don't, you don't really understand that. And then we close off this section with what we read this morning. Blind people receive sight and sighted people all through this are blind. Okay, so. There's, there's our, our lesson. There's our tests next week. Pop quiz. So I want, I want us to look, if you have your Bibles, I want you to open to Mark 10. I want to look at a couple of uh, particular things that are, that are interesting in this that I think we can look at applying to our lives. What does this mean to us today? So the, the question that John and James ask, we want to be kind of leaders in this kingdom, because we can see you're talking about your glory and you're talking about this new kingdom coming, though they didn't still understand how it was going to come about. They didn't want to hear about his death and uh, suffering, but they knew that they wanted to be uh, chiefs. They wanted to be leaders. So Jesus, in verse 42, again, turns this world on its head and says this. This is Mark 10:42. Jesus called them to himself 
all the disciples, and says, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. And that's the way we think about it, don't we? People that we elect or people that are our bosses, they exercise authority over us, and it seems like that's the position from which you can really get things done. And Jesus says, No, that's not how it is in my kingdom. It shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant. Again, this echoes back to what we talked about when he puts the little child in their midst. It's the same themes. If if we want to be great in God's kingdom, we have to be least. So whoever would be first among you in verse 44, you must be the slave of all. That's That's a radical, very radical thing for him to say. At the end of this sermon, we're going to be um, praying for and installing two new elders. So welcome to slavery. Peter and Scott, because that is what leadership should be like in the kingdom of God. We are not ones. Yes, we have decision-making power, but really it makes us servants and slaves. That That is, again, you know, we, we would tend to follow. i just tell you in my own life, the, the bosses and those who I thought had authority over that I would follow to the ends of the earth were the ones that served me, the ones that I knew had my best interest at heart. That's the kind of leaders I think we all want. And that's the kind of leader Jesus is. He demonstrated his love for us. How? By telling us what to do? No. This is how we know what love is. First John 3.16 says that Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. So also ought we to love one another. So this is the demonstration of God's authority that he lays down his life. And so it should be not only in the church, but in our families. If you want to be great, lay down your life for those that you serve. Then in verse 45, he makes this statement. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So that's a pivotal verse and, and, and something I want you to think of because Christian discipleship, listen to this carefully, if you want to be a follower of Christ, it is not primarily about, firstly, about serving Christ with great sacrificial service. First and foremost, it is about allowing the Son of God to serve you. Hear that. Listen to what he says. The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. Remember when Peter comes and he says, uh, I'm not going to let you wash my feet. Remember Jesus' response? If, if I don't wash you, your feet, then you have no part of me. If you don't allow me, Peter, to serve you as a servant, you have no part in this. And, and Peter says what? Well, then wash me all. He says, I don't need to wash your body. It's not that you're dirty in, in your cleanse. You need to be served by the Son of God. And it puts you in that position, sort of this awkward position, doesn't it, to be served by someone greater. It's awkward. We just think that it's wrong. It seems so wrong to be served by someone who's great. And yet he says, this is what it is because it puts you in a position of humility and need. I need you, Jesus, to serve me. 
And, and this is the opening gambit for being a disciple is acknowledging how desperate our need is. If, if you don't really need God, if you're considering him like, well, I sort of, I don't really need him, but I might or whatever, then you're not ready to be a disciple yet. To be a disciple is to allow Jesus Christ to serve you by laying down his life for you and by saying you need that. And then we come out of that and it says what? We ought also to love one another. Our way of serving is to serve those, particularly those who can't do it for us in return. Rather than the quid pro quo of what, what do I get? Again, that's the way this world operates, right? Serve people who later on can give you, you know, scratch your back after you scratch theirs. And the Bible says, no, you, you serve just because he's already served you. And then he says this, to give his life, he came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. The word ransom, we think of it now in terms of like kidnapping, right? The ransom of Red Chief or something where, you know, you, you give, you pay back something uh, once it's been taken away from you to, in order to get it back. And that can lead to a little bit of confusion because you can think, well, what is like Jesus, uh, you know, held ransom by Satan? That kind of what it can seem is he, you know, Satan's going to lock Jesus up in the death jail. He's going to lock him up and, you know, okay, well, you better pay it back and, you know, Satan will open the door. No, Satan has no power over that. Satan is not, it's not like that. He's created by this. The ransom, again, is that if there's no justice, if no one pays the price for our sin, then we pay it. And believe me, the payment for the, our sin is not a pretty thing. It's eternal death. And he says, I've paid that ransom. It's costly, but I've done that for those who acknowledge my need, their need of him. So important verse, I would encourage you to, if you haven't tucked this one away, it's short, but in your memory bank, even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And then we close off this whole section with this healing of this blind beggar named Bartimaeus. And I just want to point out a couple of things in this story as well. The, uh, the beggar is on the side of the road, and he's sitting, uh, crying out. He hears that Jesus is going to come by. What? Answer me this. What is... Bartimaeus initially asking for, as most beggars have been to third world nations, and, and, uh, you know, it's a pathetic sight, but you see people begging. What are they asking for? Money. Okay. And this, it says alms. And I'll just tell you this as an aside. Parents, be sure to define for your children terms that you may think they know, because for about five, six years of my life when I was at Truro growing up, I thought the man didn't have any arms. Because I was in children's church and they were talking about how Bartimaeus was asking for arms. And I thought, the poor guy is not only blind, but he's armless. And so, and I wondered why he didn't ask Jesus for arms at the same time he asked for his sight. It always confused me until an embarrassingly old age when I learned the word alms. So be very careful with your children. So, um, he's asking for alms. Important, hold on to that for just a second. What's the disciples' reaction for this man stirring up the status quo and creating kind of a loud cacophony of sound as they're walking? What's, what's their reaction? Be quiet. You, you know, what, is, what are they saying? Re- they're rebuking him, telling him to be quiet. So again, do they understand the nature of the kingdom, which is people crying out to God in their need is what we want. 
And can I just tell you this, just an aside? We have a world of people that in their own way are crying out. They don't even know that they need God, really. They don't know about Jesus yet. And I think sometimes we say, just be quiet as people are expressing the depth of their wound and their pain and their sin. And sometimes I think as Christians, our attitude is just be quiet. I don't want to hear that. Can we hear in the pain of their cries that people really want answers to their life? And that Jesus ran to the man who was causing the disturbance. He was the ultimate squeaky wheel. And and Jesus said, no, don't rebuke him. Let's get together. And so here they are, and they say, many rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. Again, this blind man knows just who he is. He's Messiah. He's the son of David. That title would have been given to the Christ. Jesus stops and says, call him. They called the blind man. Take heart. Get up. He's calling you. It's a great verse. Take heart. Get up. He's calling you. You know, some of you all here, you, I know you, you think about this religion or Christianity, whatever you want to call it, and you think this is, it's foolishness. And I, I, I thought that. I, I, I'm very sympathetic to that because it definitely seems like foolishness. Take heart. Get up. God is calling you. Hear it. Even if you've been in church a lot, hear it. He's calling you. He hears what's going on in your heart. Throwing off his cloak, he sprang up and he came to Jesus. And Jesus says, what do you want me to do for you? Okay, this seems like a pretty, like, look, a blind man's coming to you and, and you know, you're the healer. Isn't it obvious, Jesus? Does Jesus not know what he wants him to do for you? I, I mean, there are other times when Jesus doesn't ask the question. It's just patently obvious, and he doesn't always say, what do you want me to do for you? Sometimes he does. I want you to notice two things in this. One is the man hadn't been asking for sight all along. He'd been asking for arms arms before this. And I think Jesus wants to make sure that he knows that he's much more than an alms giver. And Jesus Christ is much more than one that solves your financial crisis, your relational crisis, your emotional crisis, your health crisis. If that's all you're looking to Jesus for, you're asking him for alms. Jesus doesn't want you to just ask him for alms. He wants you to ask him for sight because you are blind and I am blind without Jesus. And so Jesus wants to make sure. Also, do you realize this is not the first time in this passage Jesus has asked, what is it you want from me? Even what Sarah read in this last piece. It's exactly the same words and question that Mark has pieced together in this when he calls them, in verse 36, James and John say, Teacher, we want us to do whatever you, we ask of you. And he says, Okay, what do you want me to do for you? It's exactly the same question. And the seeing people say, We want to be chiefs in the kingdom. And the blind man says, I just want to see you. So, no demands for glory just acknowledges his need. He says, Rabbi, just let me recover my sight. And Jesus says he doesn't touch him. He doesn't put spit on his eyes. Jesus doesn't operate the same way every time in your life or mine or in the Bible. Go your way. Your faith has made you well. 
and immediately he recovered his sight. And then it says, and he followed Jesus along the road. That phrase we've seen before too. He says, he's becoming a disciple. He's just, when he sees his sight, the implication from Mark is he just begins to walk in a new way, following Jesus. This morning, I just would love to just have us as we, as we pray and as we close, ask the question of you. If, if Jesus came in right now and says, what do you want me to do for you? I don't think we have anyone here who's blind. We might, but I'm not aware of anyone here. So can't ask for sight in that way. It's a heart reveal. The answer to that question reveals something about the heart. right? It did for James and John, and it does for Bartimaeus. What do you want him to do for you? My, my kids always ask me, Dad, what do you want for your birthday? You know, what's, my stock, what's my stock answer? Nothing, right? I got more of that. I got more stuff, you know. I've begun to say, though, as, I, as, I've, as I'm now in the uh, senior citizen crowd, I, uh, I've begun to have that feeling of, would you spend time with me? You know? Because I'm in that cats in the cradle, Harry Chapin stage where I'm thinking, you know, it's, it's going to come to the day where, you know, they're going to be on their own lives. And sort of my thought is, you know, what I really want is to spend time with you. So that's what you can get me next September. What do you want God to do for you? I have a feeling God would love to spend time with you. If you asked him, Lord, what would you like me to do for you? But before we serve, we need to be served. Would you like Jesus to save you? Would you like him? Would you like to know if there's a God? Would you like to figure out how to mend a broken relationship? Anything that would please God. Before I ask the elders to come up and we pray for installing our new elders. I'm, I'm just going to have us pray for a minute. And I just want to lay that question out for us. Or what is it? Lord Jesus, if you came and we were crying out to you and said, what is it you want me to do for you, Lord? Lord, would you reveal our hearts? Would you help us to get real, not just say the Sunday school answer? We know the right answer, quote unquote, Lord, but would you help us to know? Lord, and it's not wrong to want healing. It's not wrong to want to see you mend broken things. But Lord, show us our deepest need if our relationship with you is broken, Lord. Come to us, Lord. Reveal yourself to us. What is it you want me to do for you? You delight, Lord, in answering the cries of your children, and we lift ourselves to you. We thank you for your word and the way it reveals so much about humanity and the way life really is. Help us, Lord as we move from this place and out from this place to take with us a new kingdom, a kingdom that isn't blind, Lord, but that understands how much we need 
to be served by the king, to then serve him in return by serving others by the least of these. Lord, keep us walking with the king in the kingdom, even as you've shown us and shown how it's done. It's in your name we pray. Amen.